0: Following on from yesterday's reading uh, from Cossard about the tapestry I've come to the same image here in Dr. Lings's book The Secret of Shakespeare page 179 In life we have no view of the whole We see only bits and pieces here and there and our view is quite distorted What is near to us we look at with feverish subjectivity What is not near we look at with more or less cold objectivity. Above all, we fail to see the pattern. It is as if life were a great piece of tapestry and as if we looked at it from the wrong side, where the pattern is obscured by a maze of threads, most of which seem to have no purpose. Now, a play of Shakespeare's is like a much smaller piece of tapestry, partly copied from the other, but also in virtue of an aspect of what we call his secret, copied from the transcendent original of the other, that divine harmony of which the temporal and spatial cosmos is a reflection, but of which it is merely a reflection, whence the superficial discords which for fallen man give the lie to the profound beauty of the image as a whole a totality which he cannot see being by definition cut off from the vision of it the remarkable intensity of shakespeare's copy is redoubled by the corresponding intensity of those who hear it and see it the dramatist is highly privileged with the privilege that he shares with no other artist except the composer of music namely the extreme passivity of his audience. It is in the nature of things that people go to a play in the hope that they will be spellbound. Shakespeare holds out this smaller piece of tapestry to us in the theatre, between ourselves and him. He is on the right side of it and we are again on the wrong side, just as unlike him we are on the wrong side of the great tapestry of life. To begin with, we look at the rather chaotic maze of threads with the same cold objectivity with which we view the threads of our neighbours' lives. But little by little, as the play goes on, we are drawn into it and become more and more bound up with its threads. Our cold objectivity vanishes and we feel the warmth of subjectivity. So it is with any dramatic piece, one may say, That is true, but with most drama, what is the benefit to be gained? It is simply a question of exchanging one's ordinary subjectivity for another one, which is no better and which may be worse. But when a drama is created as an image of the whole universe, and when the hero represents a great soul which is being purified of all its faults and being developed towards the limits of human possibility, then... It is no light thing to be drawn into the web of the tapestry and to become identified with its central figure. But that is not all. The purification of the hero is in view of an end. By the close of the play we have become objective once more, but with a higher objectivity which is completely different from the initial one. For Shakespeare has drawn us right through the tapestry and out at the other side, so that we now see it as it really is, a unity in which all the parts fit marvelously together to make up a perfect whole. Having been given a taste of the hero's purification, we are now given one of the spiritual wisdom to which it leads. And just as Shakespeare's small tapestry merges mysteriously with the great tapestry of life, so our view of the harmony and beauty of the one is also, in a sense, a view of the harmony and beauty of the other. We participate naturally and almost involuntarily in the world of holiness. Dr. Lings has put that in quotation marks. I'm not sure what he's he's quoting, maybe something earlier in the chapter. We participate naturally and almost involuntarily in the world of holiness. It is only a momentary glimpse, and it does not last. But it does make an imprint upon the soul, which may not be easily effaced. Shakespeare's being from the outset on the right side of the small tapestry he holds out to us in the theatre is part of his secret as an artist. His being on the right side of the great tapestry of life is part of his secret as a man. This higher objectivity is directly mentioned by King Lear at the beginning of the last scene of the play. He is now almost at the end of the quest... And he imagines what it would mean to be altogether united with Cordelia, who, according to the deeper meaning of the play, is herself a personification of the same objectivity which can, to use her own words, out-frown false fortunes frown. 536 536 In an already quoted speech, the king says that they will live together in prison. Quote, and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh At gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news And will talk with them too Who loses and who wins Who's in, who's out and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were God's spies. Act 5, scene 3, lines 12 to 17. Alone, the eye of the intellect, the eye of the angels who are God's spies, can perceive the justice of the workings of providence. It is clearly from the standpoint of this higher objectivity that the maturer plays were written, And when at the end, having passed through the tapestry, we stand side by side with Shakespeare himself, we also, for the moment, have in a sense taken upon ourselves the mystery of things.